You are listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You can find more sermons and resources at ardmorecc.com. Now here's Pastor Artie Farb with today's message. Uh, in the room is a good friend of mine, Doug Dean. But if you can imagine, uh, as it happens in all relationships, sometimes we do things to hurt or offend one another, and so we have to make amends or we want to have a discussion and we want to make apologies or we want to clear the air and and if you can imagine that um which is hard to imagine because he's such an upstanding guy but let's say that doug wronged me in some way and he wanted to clear the air he wanted to straighten that up now uh, he knows me well so his might his instinct might be already i'd like to buy you a reuben and i want to talk about some things but let, let's say instead that i'm as much of an adventure junkie as doug dean is and let's, for argument's sake, say I'm, an, I'm at least halfway as in shape as Doug is. And uh, he invites me on a hike. And so we're hiking and we're surrounded all by this beautiful scenery. And then finally we have a moment to pause and he takes that moment to say, you know, there's something I wanted us to talk about as we went on this hike today. And he makes his confession and he apologizes. And, and I say to him, Doug, thank you for saying that. And maybe I offer some input into the conversation. But I end with the resolution of, Doug, I forgive you. That is what Doug needed in that moment. What Doug was looking for was a confession and a dialogue that would result in his being forgiven so that that offense or that hurt or that harm no longer creates a disruption in the harmony of our relationship with one another. So uh, I was blessed by his apology, and he was blessed. He kind of accomplished the goal he was looking for in ascertaining my forgiveness and then kind of removing any kind of weirdness in our relationship. Now, if you can imagine, then we go on along that hike, and for some odd reason, Doug miscalculated, miscalculates, and he steps, and he falls off the edge of a fairly sizable cliff. And when he does, he breaks his leg, and he screams out in pain, he doesn't know how he's going to get back out of this ravine. Plus, his leg is broken. And then we notice in a distance that the commotion has stirred the attention of a mountain lion that is hungry. And uh, so Doug appropriately uh, really expresses himself in what is the closest to authentic prayer. Help! My leg is busted open. I need to get out of here. And a lion is coming to eat me. And I look down from the ravine and I say, it's okay, dog, I forgive you. He needs more than that. He needs me to be willing to put my life at risk. He needs me to be willing to descend down in that ravine. Maybe, let's say for fantasy's sake, I have a little bit of uh, awareness of basic first aid and patch up his leg. Maybe he needs in his weakness me to somehow defend him from the danger of the lion. My friends, the second scenario is the gospel. It is so much more than the message that your sins are forgiven. It is that you've been rescued, redeemed, restored, renewed, and reconciled. The gospel isn't just saying, isn't just Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. 
The gospel is I'm getting down in that pit at great cost to myself to protect you, to bind up your wounds and to protect you from that which seeks to harm you so that you can be delivered, healed, and made completely whole and rescued. That is the gospel. Unfortunately, too many in the Bible Belt, if you ask about the gospel, you're going to hear about sin and forgiveness. Now, again, I am not saying that sin and forgiveness is not a part of the gospel. I am, please don't understand me to say that. It is a foundational and absolutely necessary part of the gospel. What I am saying is the gospel is so much larger than that. And a gospel that only proclaims the forgiveness of sin but doesn't instruct people, if you are a disciple and you submit to the Lord Jesus and follow him, he will rescue you, he will save you, he will restore you, he will cause you to become that which he always intended you to be by overcoming your ego, your sin, your selfishness, your pride, your anger, your lust. He's gonna set you free from these dangers so that you can be restored to all that you intended to be. This, my friends, is the gospel. And if we truncate it to only forgiveness of sins, what happens is, is when the challenges of life hit us, we don't turn to the gospel for deliverance. We turn to other practical ways and other practical teachers or maybe other practical disciplines to help restore our lives. Now, again, I am not suggesting that a true Christian only thinks about the gospel and doesn't pursue other avenues of healing. That is not what I'm saying uh, I have, I've been really open about my encouragement to pursue uh, medical and mental health um, support if that's what you need. That, so I'm not suggesting that. But what I'm saying is when we do that, but we don't make Jesus, the living Christ, a part of that process of healing, then it's because we believed in an anemic gospel that can't really transform. All that it can do is make me feel better about my guilt but it doesn't reach into the heart of who I am and transform me. And this is the gospel that we are going to study as revealed in the book of Colossians over the next six months. And so this morning, I've already messed up the rhythm because as I went to bed Friday night, anytime I get sermons done before Saturday, it's a celebration in my house because it means that we can enjoy Saturday without me being tense and grumpy. Uh, and so I went to bed Friday night ready to go. By the time I woke up at one and pondered upon my bed and got up at six Saturday morning, I realized I have to write a completely different sermon because I was making too many assumptions. As you'll see next week, as we get into just the first eight verses of the book of Colossians, one of the ideas that is going to be preeminent there in that book is the idea of the gospel. And I realized I was going to come and start talking about the gospel, but we need to make sure that we understand and agree on the definition. I am not talking about the truncated gospel of an anemic Christian, contemporary Christianity. When I say the word gospel, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Greek word sozo, which is translated saved, which means that you have been healed and delivered and forgiven. I'm talking about the Hebrew word shalom, where God, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, is seeking to so transform your life that you are in the position for the optimal experience of human flourishing during your brief time on earth. Because when you flourish as a follower of Jesus, you will flourish to the glory of God. 
That's the kind of gospel I'm talking about. So I wanted to make sure when take one Sunday, we talk about the gospel so that we're kind of on the same page next week. Um, I'm trying not to be so um, challenging as I have been in previous years and just present the beauty of the truth that God is revealing. And so I'm not going to make a ton of comparisons and clarifications, but, but I don't also don't want to deceive you. I do not believe the gospel is about getting your sins forgiven so that you go to heaven after you die. It is an encounter with the living Christ like Paul on the Damascus Road that changes everything. It changes the stewardship of my vocation and my job. It changes the stewardship of my emotions. It changes the stewardship of my body. It changes the stewardship of my sexuality. It changes the stewardship of my finances. Literally, encountering the living Christ brings a progressive transformation that might start small but works its way into every single part of our lives, kind of like a little bit of leaven can leaven the entire loaf of bread. That's the gospel that I'm talking about. There's a simplistic, a sim, not simplistic, but a simple way that it is uh, articulated in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, uh, which again, we'll look at again in two or three weeks, but just a few comments this morning. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Colossians is going to confront you with how bizarre your faith really is. It is going to confront you with the idea that we believe magnificent and majestic and cosmic truths about our God and the work that he accomplished on the cross. And so the, full, the first thing that we see is that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So there is a way now, I want to be appropriately Trinitarian and understand the reality that God exists as a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, that would be an interesting sermon series somewhere down the line because it reveals God as relational in his very being, but that's for another time. But what I want us to recognize is in we, when we talk about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we are synonymously talking about what God has accomplished in the life of teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ. I don't have a, I, I don't think that I can completely get my mind around that. We've got 2,000 years of theological reflection of people trying to understand and articulate this, but the, the problem I have, even though I spent 20 years very passionate about theology, the problem that I have with the, uh, theology and systematic theologians from time to time is this. Theology seeks to answer what God has chosen to keep a mystery. So to me, if my systematic theology isn't clearly articulated in the scripture, or if it arbitrarily resolves some tension that the scripture hasn't resolved, then I really don't take it all that seriously. I mean, I may learn from it, but I downgrade it in terms of its authority to speak into my life. Because I don't want a belief system that seeks to take away the mystery that God has chosen to keep in place. And one of these mysteries is the magnitude of the gospel and this miracle that God chose to have his fullness dwell in Christ. Verse 20. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile everything to himself. 
Another way that this verse could be articulated is that God was in Christ reconciling everything to himself, which is a phrase that Paul uses in another one of his letters. Through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether kings on earth, whether things on earth or things in heaven, look at this, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We're going to spend six months peering into this mystery and asking ourselves, what did this mean for the Colossians who originally received this letter? And by understanding that, ask ourselves, what might this mean to a contemporary congregation in southern Oklahoma? And then specifically, what might this mean in the way the Holy Spirit is calling me to respond to this truth? You know, you read this verse... And it's amazing to me that we represent the God who has reconciled everything to himself and we get caught up in doing it in such antagonistic ways. Why would we ever go forth in antagonism to proclaim a message that God has removed all antagonism? This is why we have to be very careful we have to make sure we're being moved and motivated by the gospel, not political ideologies and not strange doctrines, but that we are centered on the truth of the gospel. We understand who God is in order to understand how we are called to be in this world. And then you will see, my friends, how it's not a casual thing that we get our emotions stirred up on social and political issues. This requires real discipline for the follower of Jesus. Because guess what? In submission to Lord Jesus, we really aren't allowed to just speak as angrily and as hatefully as the culture around us. We're actually called to be separate. This is what holy means. It means to be the called out ones. And I know that in Bible about Oklahoma, we like to think of that primarily just in sexual ethics, but it's not just in sexual ethics. It's also in the way we treat other people, the way we speak to other people. It is not an option for me to simply indulge my anger every time I feel it. Why? Because I am here to represent the God who has done all the hard work at great cost to himself to reconcile everything to himself. So I don't want to present any kind of message that creates an obstacle for those who need to know of that reconciliation to actually experience the reconciliation. Because look at this verse, what has been reconciled? Everything. God has brought together that which sin sought to pull apart. God has done and is doing in the gospel everything that he always intended to do. And I hope by the time you leave here, you'll be convinced of that by even reflecting on the history of our faith as found in the Old Covenant Scriptures. There are so many ways to define the gospel. It's both simple and it's complex. This next statement is not so much a definition, but is a fruit of the gospel that I want to highlight, and I want us to sustain that meditation over the next six months as we peer into the gospel as it's revealed in the book of Colossians. The gospel is the good news of how God desires and has made a way to heal everything that sin has harmed. And that is much as good news for me 
when I was seven years old, scared to death that I was going to be burnt alive and separated from my loved ones forever if I didn't accept the forgiveness Jesus offered. Well, that meant something to me, that God sought to heal that which sin harmed. But it also meant something for me tomorrow, yesterday morning, when I was sitting in prayer and was overwhelmed with conviction of the way I'd been treating my wife. Then I recognized God is still saving me, and he is still healing that which sin has sought to harm. I need Jesus as Savior as much in this moment as I did when I was seven years old, responding out of fear and anxiety and psychological manipulation. But anyway, I won't go on about that. <laughs> Salvation is more than forgiveness. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it's less than forgiveness, but we need to understand that salvation is more than forgiveness. It is the restoration of shalom. Sin disintegrates human flourishing, and shalom moves, removes the obstacles to human flourishing and restores human flourishing to the glory of God. And what is the damage that sin has done? And this is my problem with a truncated gospel. It acts as though there's only one... Uh, obstacle God was seeking to remove, one issue God was seeking to deal with. There was only one problem for which the gospel is, is the solution. That's what a truncated gospel communicates. But what we have to recognize is this. The gospel is the way of healing everything that sin has harmed. And sin has not just harmed me by making me guilty as a sinner. Sin has done a much more thorough job in wreaking havoc both in the world but also in my heart and in my personal life than just making me feel guilty. So when we understand the extensive damage of sin, then we understand how expansive our understanding of the gospel needs to be because if your understanding of the gospel addresses one area that sin has harmed but doesn't clearly articulate the way the work of Jesus heals another area that sin has harmed, then, you're, then I would submit that your understanding of the gospel is way too small. What is the damage that sin has done? Well, sin, as we're going to look at in just a few moments, has infected four fundamental human relationships. Sin has infected four fundamental human relationships. Number one, humans and God. And unfortunately, that's kind of where we limit it. But even that is a weird thing because <laughs> I, I've been in evangelicalism all my life and we proclaimed and sang about and even uh, I've been in churches where we had banners that we waved around the front and, and danced all around singing about the glories of the forgiveness of the gospel and then constantly acted like we had to earn God's favor throughout the week. So even though I, I, I'm only given half a point for that one because people will say, yes, Jesus forgave my sins, but they feel like they're still under God's displeasure and they live still under a canopy of shame which means there's not real faith in that. But it is the one we talk about the most. So it has damaged the relationship of humans and God. But secondly, it has damaged, sin has damaged a relationship with humans and themselves. Humans and themselves. In fact, I will submit to you that the greatest 
that one of the most fundamental important expressions of your discipleship is learning how to understand yourself as God understands you and sees you and rest in that restored dignity as his creation rather than maintaining a low level of shame that's constantly in the back of our minds condemning us. So, so there's a relationship with the self that is healed by the gospel, not just by pursuing healthy mental health um, disciplines, which I encourage. It's just that when I pursue my mental health disciplines, I understand that Jesus, the living Christ, is walking with me in that process. It's not somehow opposed to what he is doing. It is in partnership with what he is doing. So humans and God, humans and self, humans and others, other people. This is kind of the social dimension of what sin has done or the relational, the human relational dimension of what sin has done. And the gospel brings healing to the damage sin has done between humans and other humans. And then finally... What we're going to see is it has damaged the relationship of humans and creation. We make either creation our idol or our God, or we treat creation with contempt as though it's just something to be used for our benefit. And neither of these are in keeping with the vision that we see that God intended for the relationship of humans and his creation. And we're going to see in a minute from the very beginning, God intended us to have a healthy relationship with his creation. I am not trying to sound green. I'm not trying to sound like let's go sing to the trees or any of that kind of thing. I mean, if that's your thing, fine. I'm not going to go do that. But what I am saying is that we have devalued this conversation and therefore robbed ourselves of understanding that one of the primary means of grace that God has given us is stepping outside and being part of this magnificent creation that he has given to us as a gift. And we have undervalued that and in fact almost don't even consider that spiritual. But we're going to see it most definitely is. So sin damages, it has infected four fundamental human, human relationships. Humans and God, humans and self, humans and others, and humans and creation. And here's my point this morning. If my understanding of salvation does not impact these four basic relationships, then I have fallen for a truncated gospel that is, in fact, no gospel at all. If we are trying to understand the gospel, if we are under, trying to understand what salvation has looked like, and then I've done something a little rude and suggested to you all that it's much larger than just, than just the message of the forgiveness of sins. Well, then it's on me to at least take you on a journey to show you why I say that. Where is that conviction? Well, I think the clearest picture of what salvation is supposed to look like is found in Genesis chapter 1. And we so rarely reference it in the way we articulate salvation. So if you will, please resist the temptation to get on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Pop open your Bible app. Or some of you might want to grab a physical Bible and flip it open. Genesis is the easiest book to find. It's the first one. It's right here in the front. So let's flip over. Now, if you're, if you're live tweeting the insights of this sermon, then that's okay. 
but other than that, let's just stick to the Bible app. All right, so the clearest picture of God's shalom in his creation is found in Genesis 1. It is critical that we understand God's vision of shalom if we're going to talk about salvation, because here's what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to suggest to you that rather than being a message about how to know that you're going to go to heaven when you die, salvation in Christ is the dream of God. Salvation is the manifestation of the dream of God's heart. And this is very clear in Genesis chapter 1. Take a moment and do something that has become rare in churches. Let's just read scripture together this morning. So crack open to Genesis chapter 1. I don't know if we'll get as far as I intend, but we're going to walk through this together. So it'll be more interesting to you if you read along with me. I am reading from the Christian Standard Bible. That's the translation I'm reading from. Okay, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. Look at this. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. I love this. I love this. It says before everything, while the closest that we can conceive of life before creation being darkness and chaos, even in the darkness and chaos and the nothingness of the beginning, there was in fact not nothingness. Why? Because the Spirit of God was there. God was present even in that moment. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that, um, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was an evening and there was a morning one day. But I hope that you see that God's vision has always been earthy. It has always included the bringing together of both heaven and earth, the divine and the human from the very beginning. There's always been his vision. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning, the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Do you see what we're building up to? God is not just concerned about some legal status of your soul so that he knows where to put you after you die. God is in the details. His desire was to gift his creation with this magnificent place in which we get to live out our lives. But not only is it for our pleasure, but it's because this very creation itself be, uh, uh, displays the glory of the creator. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and fruit-bearing trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. 
I, I really love this progression because it didn't take us showing up in order for God to take joy in what he was creating. Why? Because his pleasure is at the center, not ours or even our existence. So he creates all of this and he continues to take joy in it. What does he say at the end of these creation movements? It is very good. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth to rule the day and the night and to separate light from darkness and God saw that it was good evening came and then it was the fourth day then God said let the water swarm with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky so God created the large sea creatures and everything and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. Then God, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to, all, to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And look at this. And God saw that it was This is why, in truth, now, not if you're using it as an excuse, but in truth, worship should flow from our hearts as we are caught up in the beautiful aesthetic of skillful people who can lead with instruments and with their voice. But that same spirit of worship should enrapture us when we take a walk with our dog, when we go out with a bow and hunt, when we toss a fishing pole into a pond, whenever we hike, whether that be somewhere in Colorado or just going up to the uh, Arbuckle Mountains. You see, there should not be this line of sacred worship and secular worship. As a follower of Jesus, all of this is a gift and it's all very good. Why? Because it reveals to me the nature of my creator, of my then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Isn't that interesting? I, I can't, I promise myself I wouldn't do this and I'm not going to do this much. But it is funny that uh, before it was about their kinds and their likeness, but now when it comes to man, let us make man in our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. 
rule the fish of the sea and the, and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. There you go, vegans. Vegans, a little shout out to you. For all, for, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw that he had, God saw all that he had made, and it was, look at this, very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So if we have any kind of negative view of the world and of God's creation, we have to remember that what we are actually reflecting upon isn't creation itself, but the damage that sin has done. Because what God has done in creating the world and animals and you and me in his likeness was his dream. This is his work of art. This flowed out of his creative impulse. You know, we're not told, and we can't really comprehend what timelessness was like. But who knows how long the spirit hovered over that chaos before there was the impulse, let's create life. And then as John is going to tell us, it was Jesus himself that is the one who brought forth the life and the creation that was created. And so we recognize and see that the dream of God's heart isn't just spiritual destination and eternity. And the dream of God's heart is not just us following a better moral code. The dream is of God's heart is that we flourish in this world that he has created because he knows it is very good. Now, as you know, we can get that, that, that Genesis 1 is a poem in Hebrew. And there's another poem in Genesis chapter 2 that also recounts and celebrates creation, giving special attention to the creation of man and woman. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is also important for understanding salvation. So we begin at Genesis chapter 1. We begin with meditating on the, on the dream in God's heart. And then we go with what went wrong. And here's where we have to pay attention. Because God's plan of salvation is equal to the destruction that uh, took place in what we might refer to as the fall. Now the serpent, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but about the... But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at it, and then it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So here's what's interesting in the story of why we need to, quote, be saved, why we need the gospel. What's the very first relational consequence 
in the garden is, a, is, is man's broken relationship with himself. So the first consequence that they experience after taking and eating of the fruit is now they think about themselves differently. Now they think of themselves with what? Shame. Shame now becomes the narrative of their life. So immediately there's a consequence, and that consequence isn't that they make God angry, which unfortunately I think many of us were told growing up in church. No, the first tragedy is that man loses his own sense of self-worth and dignity because now he's filled with shame at the knowledge of good and evil. Then we move on, which is interesting. In my, in my Bible, there's like these headings. And so the next verse begins with the heading sin's consequences, which is interesting because really that heading should have happened before because the first consequence of sin is his creation experiences shame instead of joy and liberty. Then verse eight, then the man said, then, his, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So here we have uh, a disintegration in man's relationship with God. Instead of enjoying this fellowship, they run from God. But here's another important thing that I want you to see because it addresses a corrective in the way we present the gospel. In their sin, God ran toward them. He did not run away. He did not separate himself. They sinned before this part of the story. And in their sin, God doesn't come to them as their adversary. He comes to them as their advocate. So the Lord called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, Well, the woman to, uh, that you gave me to be with me, she gave me some fruit, and I ate. Man's relationship with himself is broken. Man's relationship with God is broken, and human's relationship with one another is broken. As now that shame and that guilt results not in ownership, but in blaming someone else. So then we have this tension of the broken human relationship. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. Uh, you will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. I will make, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel, which of course many see as a reference to the victory of Christ on the cross. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. 
You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for dust, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. Now we see that man's harmony with creation is broken. So this is what sin does. It breaks our harmony with ourselves. It breaks harmony with God. It breaks harmony with one another. And it breaks harmony with even God's creation, God's created order. These are the four significant human relationships that have been damaged because of sin. And I would submit to you, these are the four relationships that are restored because of the gospel. This is God's answer to this dilemma. Now look at this last little bit, and I know there's some controversial things in here that I'm not going to get into today. I just want to read the story and take it on its own terms this morning. Then it says, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So the very first act of God after he pronounces the consequences of sin is to go and deal with man's broken relationship with himself by seeking to cover their shame. Uh, the Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Do you guys see that? This is really, really amazing here. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flame and the, and, and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the entrance to the tree of life. Now, here we have all the elements. You have God's goodness, you have sin, and you have judgment. But here is something critical. The very first time we see a reference to God's judgment, can you see that his judgment is an act of mercy? What motivates him to remove them from the garden? So that they don't eat of the tree of life and be bound in their state forever. Now we're going to touch on this in this series. My concern is in the Bible Belt, we've said that God's justice is for retribution. But in fact, God's justice, God's judgment is not vengeance, punishment, and retribution. It is an expression of his mercy. It is based in his desire to do them good. So, we, don't, we can't get as far as I wanted to get because time's running short. But if you look at the very next, very next story, I'll just tell it by memory as best I can. Uh, you can go back and read it later. What's the next story in Genesis chapter 4? Cain and Abel. What happens? Well, Cain... Uh, brings an offering to God. God doesn't accept it. And it says that then Cain becomes despondent. So right here, what do we see? His broken relationship with God, his broken relationship with himself. Then he goes on and God says to him, sin is coming for you. You have to master it. Thus reinforcing the, the, the battle that Cain has with the broken relationship with himself. And then what does he do? He coaxes um, Abel out into the field he murders Abel, and guess what testifies against Cain? Does anybody remember? The blood from where, though? The ground. 
And it's actually the ground that testifies against Cain because of the blood that was spilt. His blood on the ground, it testifies and bears witness against Cain. So here we have this, this brokenness of Cain's relationship even with the harmony of the created order. And what does God do? He sends him away in judgment, but Cain says, this is too much. People will kill me, and so God gives him a mark. Judgment as mercy. Right again. Then if you want to travel through the rest of the Old Testament, this story continues to play out. The way sin has harmed and broken our relationship with God, ourselves, one another, and the created order. So, here's my assumptions about the gospel as we close that I hope will be in your mind as we study the book of Colossians. When I trust in the indwelling spirit as evidence that Jesus has made me one with the Father, I am now restored to intimacy with my creator, which is the primary goal in my being created in the first place. So that's what's restored, intimacy with God. Not just a, a system of religion that's organized about telling you what to believe about God. You see, that's not the same thing. That is not the same thing as experiencing intimacy with your creator. But that's what is restored through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When I submit to Jesus as my Lord, I'm responding in faith and trust in his forgiveness of my sin. In this redemption, God removes my shame and gives me a new identity in him. This new identity becomes my driving motivation for all that I do and accomplish with my time on earth. Thus, God restores my relationship with myself. As I grow in my experience of reconciliation with the Father, I begin to be a vessel of reconciliation in all my human relationships as I grow in my understanding that the true measure of my love for God is revealed by my love for others. Thus, the gospel heals and restores my relationship with others. As I live in rhythm with the Spirit, I learn to become a steward of the earth rather than simply a taker. In this way, creation becomes a sacrament through which I experience God's grace. That's what a sacrament is. It's, it's the means that God is in, is in place to, to, to um, communicate or to deliver his grace to us, for example. So creation becomes a sacrament through which I experience God's grace. I behold his glory and I respond with a heart of gratitude that fuels a lifestyle of worship. Thus, the gospel restores my broken relationship even with God's creation. This is the robust gospel we are going to peer into over the next six months. And I hope that I convince you that you need the gospel as much today as you did that moment you walked down the aisle and prayed a prayer and signed a decision card. So if you'll all stand with me as we get ready to come to the living Christ as he serves us at his table of communion, I want you to allow the space that's created to open your heart to engage with what the Holy Spirit might be saying. And here is my simple question. I may have presented ideas that you haven't fully considered are aspects of the gospel this morning. 
So what I would like for you to do is just engage your heart with God and ask the simple question, in which area do you need to, quote, be saved from in this season of your life? Maybe, maybe you've got your sins forgiven and you trust that, but you've never let the Holy Spirit speak to the issues of your own self-understanding of your identity or your own emotional or mental health issues in any significant way, and therefore your sins are forgiven, but you're very difficult to be in relationship with. You are emotionally broken. You are emotionally immature. And the disservice of the church is, if you're spiritual, we won't address your emotional immaturity, and that's a mistake because it truncates the gospel and regulates it to one area of our lives. So maybe it's time for you to go on a journey that you need to get well of your despair or of your pride or of your ego or your inability to communicate love to the person that's closest to you. Maybe that's where you need to be saved. Maybe it's in your relationship with yourself or maybe that bleeds over to your relationship with others. You know that even as a Christian, you've sinned and damaged relationships. You've hurt people. Maybe the Spirit wants to offer you an opportunity to be healed through repentance and restitution. Or maybe you've made the mistake of making busyness and ministry or spirituality synonymous. And what God wants to do is to restore your soul, not by another Bible study, not by going to more church meetings. He wants to restore your soul for you learning how to walk outside, to behold and look up and see how the heavens are testifying to the glory of God. Maybe the most spiritual thing that you can do is commit this week to making sure you see one sunset and one sunrise.